Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. The Bible is the Word of God. Its source is truth itself, so the Bible cannot and never lies to us. We can always be confident then that what the Bible says is reliable. This is not always the case when talking about what people say, especially when people speculate about conspiracies. Allow me to define terms. A conspiracy is a secret plan made by people in order to do something illegal or harmful. A conspiracy theory attempts to explain or foretell harmful or tragic events. This explanation tends to be an alternative to an accepted narrative. The actors who animate said conspiracy tend to be a group with nefarious intent who consequently execute a clandestine plot. A conspiracy theory is a theory, and so said explanation may or may not be true. Sometimes, conspiracy theories prove to be the ramblings of lunatics. Other times, they prove to be true, demonstrating its prophets to be wise, discerning, and critical thinkers. Still, we cannot always be confident that what a conspiracy theory suggests is reliable. Let us also be mindful that there are new conspiracies all the time, and conspiracy theories are open to change. In contrast, God's truth will remain true forever, which is one explanation why God said what He said in His Word and then closed the book. Nothing is to be added to it because His truth is eternal. We live in an age of increasing anxiety, uncertainty, and doubt. This means people are more receptive to believing conspiracy theories because, at least superficially, said explanation provides the comfort of some mental security in an uncertain world. If a person can explain why bad things are happening, it gives them a feeling of control over the uncontrollable. Consequently, the issue we will address today is how does a student of God's Word navigate the world seemingly overflowing with so-called conspiracies and conspiracy theories? That is, at times, we are so bombarded with so much information, it is becoming more difficult to arrive at a reasonable conclusion. One person's truth is another's conspiracy theory, and one's firmly held belief is regarded by another as based on faulty information. So, what is a child of God to do? The answer is go straight to God's Word. As I think it is obvious, our modern phrase, conspiracy theory, does not appear in the Bible. But the word conspiracy does, at least according to several modern translations. For example, see 2 Samuel 15.12, 1 Kings 16.16, 2 Kings 11.4, Jeremiah 11.9, and Amos 7.10. The verse I will draw your attention to is Isaiah 8.12, where the Lord speaks through His prophet and gives His people specific instructions on how they are to deal with a political crisis. God says, You are not to say it is a conspiracy regarding everything this people call a conspiracy. The Hebrew word that is translated conspiracy refers to treason, rebellion, or a planned act of open defiance of authority with the goal of setting up a new political power. The Hebrew word for conspiracy, keser, is related to the word kasar, which means to tie, bind, or be joined to something. The idea is that those whom you conspire with, you are united to. 
keep this piece of information in mind when we read the text. Now, to properly interpret Isaiah 8.12, we also have to be mindful of the historical context. At this point in biblical history, when Isaiah prophesied, the geographic land of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Of course, sin and rebellion against God is what caused the once unified kingdom of Israel to split into two. Specifically, the sin of unbelief is what caused judgment and division. Accordingly, Isaiah chapters 8-13 through 13 are one big discourse whose focus is to tell the listening audience about the great destruction that would soon come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Now why would the kingdom of Israel be crushed? Once again, because of sin. Who would be the natural agents to carry out God's punishment? The Assyrians, a nation roughly located in modern-day Iraq. You see, Isaiah prophesied during a time when the Assyrian Empire was expanding and thus conquering many lands. Yet, the Lord said that while the king of Assyria would greatly disturb the kingdom of Judah, in contrast to the northern kingdom, he would not destroy it. In fact, these chapters provide much hope of comfort in that rich provision would be made for those that fear God in perilous times. It is also crucial to note historically that while the Assyrians had many strong plans for lands to the west, both Aram, modern-day Syria, and Israel teamed up and waged war against Jerusalem. See Isaiah 7.1. Jerusalem, of course, was in the southern kingdom of Judah. That is to say, the Aramaeans and Israel formed an alliance against Judah in order to force a political union. Aware of the greater Assyrian might, the kings of Aram and Israel were trying to persuade the king of Judah, Ahaz, to join a coalition against Assyria. In the minds of the kings of Aram and Israel, three against one was better odds than two against one. This is where Isaiah interjects to persuade King Ahaz not to form an alliance with Assyria. See also 2 Kings 16, 5-18 and 2 Chronicles 28, 16-21. Isaiah serves as God's mouthpiece and says, Don't let the dual threat of Aram and Israel cause you to fear. Don't put your trust in the Assyrians to save you. Don't fear secular power or military might. Instead, trust in the Lord, for I will deliver those who depend on me. This is the context in which the prophet Isaiah was speaking when he relays cautions against a conspiracy. So on the one hand, the prophet speaks the present distress that Ahaz and his kingdom were in upon account of the threatening bond between Aram and Israel. On the other hand, Isaiah was also warning King Ahaz not to conspire with Assyria and form a counter-alliance because that would be treason. In other words, a conspiracy against God. To put it another way, in terms of God's covenant with his people, punishment for the sins of Israel's unbelief should not be responded to with the sin of unbelief. And so, in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 9-15, to the prophet says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered, and listen, all remote places of the earth. Get ready, yet be shattered. Get ready, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will fail. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. 
For so the Lord spoke to me with a mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy regarding everything that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of armies whom you are to regard as holy, and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he will become a sanctuary." But to both houses of Israel, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught. So, when Isaiah speaks about a conspiracy, he's not talking about a secret plan to do something illegal or harmful. He neither is speaking of a conspiracy theory that attempts to provide an alternate explanation for acute events. When Isaiah tells the king and the people, you are not to say it is a conspiracy, he was giving counsel not to be associated with those people who are very public about planning or forecasting a confederacy with the Assyrians. The prophet's words also touch upon what was mentioned before, that the Hebrew word for conspiracy can also be taken in the sense of a bond. Specific to our text, this bond refers to reality that the kings of Aram and Israel had conspired or bonded together. Even more, the prophet also tells the king and the people why they are not to get caught up in the so-called conspiracy because they are not to fear men, but instead to fear or revere the Lord. A fruit of unbelief is fear. It should therefore concern us in times of trouble to be on guard against all fears that elevate our own security against God's word. This guard involves both putting off worldly thinking and putting on God's truth. Accordingly, in Isaiah 8.11, the prophet says, For so the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. In other words, God was saying, do not think like unbelievers or do not go along with what the world is saying because all of such thinking is grounded in unbelief. Specifically, do not allow your mind to be consumed by the conspiracy so that you will call for Assyrian help no matter what. As Matthew Henry comments on Isaiah 11.1, God instructed his people not to think this way because, quote, There is a proneness in the best of men to be frightened at threatening clouds, especially when fears are epidemic. We are all too apt to walk in the way of the people we live among, though it be not a good way. Those whom God loves and owns, he will instruct and enable to swim against the stream of common corruptions, particularly of common fears. He will find ways to teach his own people not to walk in the way of other people, but in sober singularity. Corruption is sometimes so active in the hearts even of good men that they have need to be taught their duty with a strong hand, and it is God's prerogative to teach so, for he only can give an understanding and overpower the contradiction of unbelief and prejudice. He can teach the heart, and herein none teaches like him." Fear is contagious, and oftentimes the mind virus spreads faster than the flu. And, because fear is catching, it is so important for those grounded in God's word to hold fast to his truth because sinful fear can make your neighbor's heart fail as well. As it says in Deuteronomy 28, 
Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, so that he does not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. As is always the case with the Bible, we can't snobbishly look down at the saints of old, meaning we never adopt a spirit of judgmentalism and say, how could they do that? I never would. Or, how could they react that way? I would never do such things. The Bible is not a display of people less than we are so that we can feel more holy. We have the same broken human nature as them, so when we see others falter in the Bible, we are looking in a mirror and seeing what our flesh is inclined to do. My point is that speaking in purely earthly terms, if we consider how the people of Judah in Isaiah 8 perceived the world, they would have accurately assessed that their armies were not relatively powerful. Consequently, they would not have been able to contend with both Aram and Israel. So, of course, they yearned for a solution to assuage their anxieties and fears. For if they did not secure assistance, would they not be ruined? Perhaps they were tempted to think, Aram has joined with Israel. What will then become of us? Do we fight, run, or simply surrender? I wonder what the future holds for me due to the threat of their conspiring together. The help of an ally would have seemingly solved all these acute problems. It would have been sensible, using reason alone to say, let us conspire with the Assyrians, based upon all the available earthly information. But that's the point. While many things may seem prudent to us right now, we neither have all the information nor do we have knowledge of where our choices will ultimately lead. Hence, God speaks through his prophet not to regard the counsels of wicked men, but instead to regard divine counsel. Only God is all-knowing, and only God knows the future before it materializes. So when the good, kind, omniscient God says, don't go that way, his counsel is always infinitely more valuable than all of man's wisdom put together. This, I think, is one of the applications to our modern notion of conspiracies that many people can appreciate. We ought not to become distressed or filled with apprehension because of everything that stirs or when any little thing seems amiss. The world is very easily thrown off balance because their foundation is unsteady. They easily get bent out of shape over every new quote-unquote threat. One person says it's a plot. Another person says it's a conspiracy. These so-called plots and conspiracies get people worried. But be not afraid, as the world is afraid, because their security and comfort is subject to collapse at any moment. But the child of God trusts in an everlasting rock. So in Isaiah 8, 9-15, the prophet first tells the people to put off sinful fear or worldly thinking and to instead trust God. Even more, Isaiah explains how he was taught by God not to give way to unbelief. The prophet comforts and encourages the people of God with the same comforts and encouragements which he himself received. He calls the people to a religious fear or a sense of divine reverence. In Isaiah 8, 13-15, the prophet says, It is the Lord of armies whom you are to regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he will become a sanctuary, but to both houses of Israel he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught.
Again, as Matthew Henry once wrote, quote, The believing fear of God is a special preservative against the disquieting fear of man. End quote. Just as fear is a fruit of unbelief, a holy security and serenity of mind is a fruit of faith. This is what the prophet means when he says, The Lord will be a sanctuary or a place of refuge from a world drunk with terror. When men are big and God is small, fear will reign. But the prophet encourages us and says, Fear God and you will not fear. Instead, you will find your help, your hope, your defense, and your deliverer. God does not change, so His infinite glory always remains the same. What does waver is our apprehension of His preeminence. Consequently, to be properly affected with God's greatness, we need the Spirit's assistance through meditation on God's attributes through His Word. We need communion with the Lord through prayer, and we need fellowship with God's people. Speaking for myself, some days reading the Word and prayer feel stale and stagnant. But then, hearing from another believer what marvelous things God has done for them makes divine truth spring alive and feel all the more real because God's faithfulness was proven true for real people in real life. And so, when God is big and men are small, all the pomp of the conspirators are eclipsed and clouded and all their power no longer seems all that impressive. Hence, do not forget the Lord your Maker. Divine comfort is a direct result of divine remembrance. In Isaiah 51, 12-13, the Lord says, I, I myself, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of mortal man and of a son of man who is made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all the day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy? And where is the rage of the oppressor? Now I hope you have been equipped with a proper biblical understanding of how to think about conspiracies. So, I will ask a question posed at the start. How does a student of God's Word navigate a world seemingly overflowing with so-called conspiracies and conspiracy theories? Well, not all conspiracies are created equal. Some conspiracy theories are actually truth in disguise. Their proponents merely discern something before the rest of us. Other conspiracies are evil and immoral because they were born of sin and seek to cause more wickedness. Some folks can get so caught up in said conspiracies, it becomes their idol. Their quote-unquote calling is to prove the theory true and convert others. Do not allow your mind to be consumed by such conspiracies. If we now zoom out and take a broad look at reality, what I think these verses in Isaiah 8 nudge readers to do is to begin analyzing both history and current events from a conspiratorial perspective. Certainly, this conspiratorial view does not mean you read either newspaper or your Bible with a tinfoil hat on. Rather, it means coming to appreciate that conspiracies are happening everywhere all the time. The mistake would be to think conspiracies are peripheral and minor. Quite the contrary. Biblically speaking, when thinking about how the world works, it is all conspiratorial in that the world has conspired, is conspiring, and will conspire against God. This is exactly what the unbelievers were doing in Isaiah 8.12. 
And what the Bible also makes clear is that there is one grand conspiracy that lies behind all others, the satanic conspiracy to overthrow the kingdom of God. This satanic conspiracy began in the Garden of Eden, where the serpent recruited human beings into a campaign of rebellion against God. Essentially, every conspiracy since then has operated under the same premise, that we don't need God, that man can do better than God, and that man can save man. In the first two chapters of Genesis, there were many things that God saw as good. It is only when Eve forgot about God's command and then she saw that something was good in her own eyes, that's when humanity got into trouble. Adam and Eve thought they could do it their own way and be okay. Consequently, doing things our own way or man-saving man may tend to appear humanitarian on the outside, but on the inside, it's merely a power grab for the few and subjugation for the many. The devil's false promise that you will become like God, Genesis 3-5, shines a light on the bait but always hides the hook. Thus, when people talk about a new world order, what they're really talking about is more and more godlessness. I will conclude with a lengthy but an illuminating quote from Richard Sibbs from his works. In the spirit of remembering divine greatness, here he speaks to the spirit's role in impressing divine truth on our hearts. Quote, The spirit works in the soul together with the word of God. All the men in the world cannot persuade the soul without the work of the Spirit. Paul preached, but God opened Lydia's heart. God's Spirit must open our eyes, persuade and convict our hearts. The Spirit enlightens the understanding. God persuades sweetly by the truth by showing a man the goodness of it and its suitableness to our condition. He does not force the soul, but strongly persuades the soul so that for all the world he would not be of any other mind. The persuasions of the Spirit and the promises are stronger than the temptations of Satan and corruptions of the flesh. It is infinite mercy and goodness of God to reveal to our souls such excellent things. There is such inward rebellion and distrust in the soul that these things seem too good to be true. Considering our unworthiness and the excellencies of these things, our unbelief is the greatest sin. Let us labor then that our knowledge is spiritual knowledge. With reverent and humble hearts, let us implore the teaching of the Spirit to remove the veil as we read or hear the Word of God. End quote. In the end, nothing can usurp God, so ultimately it is not man's job to dismantle man's conspiracies. In Isaiah 8, the people were afraid of kings and thought to ally themselves with another king. Yet, the believer trusts in the only king of kings, Jesus, whose throne is already established forever. Those in union with Christ are already unified with the Lamb who has triumphed. Let us therefore not conspire against the king with unbelief, but instead remember his majesty and serve him with loyal love. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.